We begin this morning a very serious study of the Olivet Discourse, the great prophetic passage and discourse that the Lord Jesus Christ brings within the last week of his earthly ministry before the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. It will require a great deal of prayer on your part and attentiveness that is intense, we would say, if you are to truly benefit and learn. We are in a passage, a prophetic passage of Scripture that some apply only to the past, to the destruction of Jerusalem, those we would call preterist. There are those who also only put it in the future as if the whole of it were to be fulfilled at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have these rather uh, poles apart. And then you have those who find in this discourse Yes, the destruction of Jerusalem. And yes, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I put myself within that camp, as you shall see today. We have an introductory message taken really from the first three verses of Matthew chapter 24. It will begin here. And continue, Lord willing, until we get through this most significant discourse, prophetic teaching of our Lord. In the first three verses of Matthew 24, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, And what they ask here, we would see as three questions, it all belongs together. It's like one question in three parts. Tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world or age. Beginning here and for two chapters, chapters 24 and 25, we have the second longest discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ, second only to the Sermon on the Mount. It has been termed the Olivet Discourse. The Lord Jesus Christ had just pre-announced the judgment that would come upon Jerusalem. A judgment that must come, could not be avoided, because He, the Messiah, the sent one of the Father, the very Son of God, the only Savior, was rejected. 
So we read and considered last time his lament. In the last chapter, verses 37 and 38, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The solemn judgment that must come, we know, would include Jerusalem and the temple. We believe both would have reference then as the unfolding of the prophecy would be made known that your house speaks of Jerusalem and the temple, the magnificent temple. In walking away from the temple and on the way to the Mount of Olives with his disciples, they were thinking of the grandeur of this magnificent temple but the Lord had just said one stone would not be left upon another. Certainly they wouldn't have been able to resist pointing out the magnificence of it. It's a wonderful appearance. As a matter of fact, when you read Matthew, or Mark rather, chapter 13, and beginning in verse 1, we read that they pointed out, Master, look what, what great stones and what buildings are here. They were taken in by it. Could it be true? Could it really be true that this glorious structure was going to be destroyed? Then the Lord makes known, makes known to them, that not only was the temple going to be destroyed or, or deserted rather it was indeed going to be destroyed verse 2 Jesus said unto them see ye not all these things verily I say unto you there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down reaching the Mount of Olives now alone with his disciples. They posed the question or questions that would be answered and recorded in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. Looking over the valley between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, likely in the evening, while the sun was shining upon it, the temple would appear in its magnificence, a golden magnificence. It would gleam with the beauty of its snowy white marble. It was a magnificent structure. Those who traveled that way were struck by its incredible beauty. And while the temple was in view, they must have been thinking of the awesomeness of the Lord's prediction. One stone not left upon another. Then they posed their question or questions in verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, 
the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, we'll, in a coming message, deal with their question in a particular way that I believe they were asking it. And, uh, but however the disciples meant the questions, as it would seem, connecting the fall of Jerusalem and the temple together with the end of the world or the end of the age, he who knew the end as clearly as the beginning would give the most important teaching and prophecy on last things to be found in Scripture. If you study theologically, you would, you would call that eschatology or the doctrine of last things. And in this introductory study to the Olivet Discourse, the purpose will be rather comprehensive in this message and this study. Not an easy matter to find where the Lord is speaking in some places, particularly about the fall of Jerusalem. In other places, particularly about his second coming. And sometimes the fall of Jerusalem foreshadowing the second coming. But these are there. These are here. What we do know and desire to set forth in this introduction to this all-important discourse of our Lord is that the Lord's answer to the questions do apply to both the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple and his second coming to the final judgment of the world. And so... The warnings, the diligent watchfulness, the expectations that should be in the hearts and minds of all who believe will have an effectual work, an impact in those who truly possess the hearing of faith. Just as in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the word of God worketh effectually in you that believe. It is clear that two solemn divine judgments are taught in this forewarning discourse. If, as it appears, the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem is the major theme of the beginning of this discourse, then the consummate judgment of the world concludes it. And in some places, what applies to one applies to the other. The Lord did not give this discourse to satisfy curiosity. It has a very solemn, practical use. The judgment that devastates Jerusalem and destroys the sacred temple will come during the lifetime of those who heard the Lord's warnings. After which the lamenting judgment was pronounced. 
you look back into chapter 23, verse 36, Verily I say unto you, All these things shall come upon this generation. Then the Lord's lament, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. This generation, it shall come upon this generation, same generation he speaks of, then in the Olivet Discourse. It's interesting to me when I was a dispensationalist that this generation in the Olivet Discourse was taken from here and placed all the way to the second coming. Which is a stretch. <laughs> uh, that's called eisegesis, reading something that's not there. Rather than exegesis, the getting out of a passage, what is actually in it. So this generation, despite the dispensationalist attempt to make this Olivet Discourse, all of it referred to a future generation, can only refer to the generation that was alive then to whom the Lord Jesus Christ spoke. It then becomes clear that the first part of the discourse concerns the 70 A.D. destruction of the city and the temple. It belongs to that generation the Lord spoke to, as in verse 24, or rather verse 34 of Matthew chapter 24. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Yet there is also application to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ here in chapter 24, verses 29 and 30, for instance. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the horrendous suffering that would come on Jerusalem, we'll deal with that somewhat in our, the course of our study of these chapters, but there was nothing like it that ever happened in the world, nor shall ever. It was incredible. The suffering, the destruction, the death. For instance, they crucified so many Jews during that time that they ran out of wood. Immediately, after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth, notice all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The passage then on the final judgment of the world can hardly be uh, then limited to Jerusalem's destruction. It finds the Lord coming with power and great glory, and all the tribes of the earth mourn, just as John would write on the Isle of Patmos, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. That could hardly be limited to the destruction of Jerusalem. Then uh, the coming abomination of desolation 
referred to in the same context has a particular application to the 70 AD judgment upon the city and the temple. In chapter 24 and verses 15 through 18, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And the Lord predicts to his own, when this takes place, swiftly get out of the city, because it, of course, was going to be destroyed. This abomination of desolation. We're made to wonder what is meant by this sign the Lord gives to his disciples that's called the abomination of desolation, which is the sign immediately to get out of Jerusalem. But we see what is meant when we compare Scripture. When we look in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 21. In Luke chapter 21. And in verses 20. And 21. Of course in Luke chapter 21 again you have the Olivet Discourse. Recorded by Luke. And so he writes in Luke chapter 21 in verses 20 and 21. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him which, uh, them which are on, uh, in the midst of it depart out. And let not uh, them that are in the countries enter therein. So you have the scripture telling us the Roman armies would constitute this abomination of desolation, we might ask why that would be, when they come to Jerusalem, they'll be carrying their standards. Their standards that had the eagle, the Roman eagle of brass on the top. Below it was a bust of Caesar who was commanded to be worshipped. This was abominable to the Jews. They had the idol images of their emperor who was worshipped as a god. Then, if we find that in chapter 24, the destruction of Jerusalem is the prominent theme, and yet also commingled with the second coming to universal judgment, Chapter 25 distinctly concludes with the coming judgment of the world at the end of the age. I won't read that, but I'll leave that to you in Matthew chapter 25 and verses 41 through, or 31 through 46. That, of course, is when in finality some go into everlasting punishment, some into everlasting life. 
that is coming a final judgment at the end of the world. It's the same discourse the Lord is giving here. And so, as another put it, to refer that closing passage to the destruction of Jerusalem is absurd and impossible, which it is. So the view that the whole discourse, chapters 24 and 25, refers to the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem only is strange in the light of the universal language that we find in verse or chapter 25. Stranger still, as we shall see. The apostles themselves pick up the illustrations that are used in the Olivet Discourse. And they apply them to the consummate second appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be strange indeed if the whole were then speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, that they would make use of that distinctly in the context of the second appearing. And I'd rather believe the apostles than the commentaries. I'd rather believe what they wrote and understood. Both Peter and Paul used the same illustrations and figures that the Lord uses in this Olivet Discourse. They distinctly apply these figures to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, the sudden universal flood in the days of Noah is picked up by Peter the Apostle as a distinct warning that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. Peter picks up that same thing. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, there were those who were scoffing because the Lord had not come yet. There shall come scoffers in the last days, saying, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Peter picks up, goes to the flood analogy, and then he also uses the same figure of the thief in the night coming. The Lord warns that his coming will be unannounced, it will be sudden, calling for continual watchfulness and readiness, using that illustration of the thief in the night in chapter 24 and verses 42 through 44. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come, but know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would have come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken through. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking of that which is unannounced, comes suddenly, unexpectedly. The same illustration is picked up not only by the Apostle Peter, but by the Apostle Paul, when the Distinctly, he's speaking of the second appearing or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll quote you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. This we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. But when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The teaching comes from the Lord. It is applied to his second appearing. Distinctly, you have passages that you find it difficult to apply to the destruction of Jerusalem. Then, we must consider... That if when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, the very powers of heaven are shaken. Even the star is falling. Does this apply to the destruction of Jerusalem as well as to the final judgment of the world? Well, if you used a crass literalism, one star is far bigger than this earth. Far, far bigger. Had the stars literally fallen, there wouldn't be an earth. We wouldn't be here if that had taken place in the fall of Jerusalem. But it did. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, it did. How could that possibly be? In chapter 24, verses 29 and 30, we read, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Well, you see, it must apply to the destruction of Jerusalem. Because shortly thereafter, the Lord said, all these things shall come upon this generation. Piqued your interest? How could it be? Well, this requires something. This requires that we understand the way of biblical prophecy. Prophecy is not an easy study. There are those who will take figures and apply them with a crass literalism that when the whole of prophetic scripture is considered and these signs and figures are found in other prophecies, they teach us something about what they mean. We need to understand the way types and figures are used consistently in biblical prophecy. And that then the scriptures only, and not a crass literalism, must guide our understanding. And the scriptures must be our only authority. As in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. doesn't matter what else they try to bring in. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. This is the authority. 
The scriptures are not a lazy man's book. It requires a great deal of diligence and study and comparing. In biblical prophecy, these figures are used to signify the removing of one order, the massive removing of one order and the bringing in of another. The forceful shaking and overturning of one whole system and turning it to another. For instance, turn to Isaiah chapter 13. This is not the only place, but this will give you the understanding of how these figures are used. In Isaiah chapter 13, notice verses 9 through 13. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and the land, and, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. So we have the day of the Lord that's spoken of here. That comes other times, not only at the very end. Notice, for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened in his going forth. And the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than gold, fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. Now, what does this apply to? Is he talking about the end of the world? No, he's not. He's not even talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. No, he's not. These figures, you remember, biblically in prophecy, speak of the complete removal of one massive system and order and the bringing in of another. This was applied these figures to speak of the destruction of Babylon. If you look in verses 19 through 22 of Isaiah chapter 13. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherd, uh, shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there, and the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her days shall not be prolonged. When this massive change took place, the figures are used. 
the sun, the moon, the stars, and so forth, the shaking of all things, which is very important to understand. When the Lord destroys Jerusalem, and he will destroy it, in one parable, he speaks of the armies that will be sent as his armies. He's the judge. He's the solemn judge. When the Lord destroys Jerusalem and the temple, never again, ever, to be a nation in covenantal relationship with God. That's over as a national entity in covenant with God forever. Then, when this destruction takes place in 70 AD Christianity is then forever separated from Judaism a massive change even believers they still went to the synagogues and the temples they still did these things but this ceased all the old covenant sacrifices and these things they ceased they were over everything was over Judaism in that regard was completed it was over and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ was established permanently in the world upon the overthrow of Judaism. Do we have a Bible for that? You remember, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You have every right to say, Preacher, show me that. Right? Want me to show it? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> and we'll begin reading at verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that speaks on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Now, the book of Hebrews deals with the Hebrew Christians. Their great temptation was to go back to Judaism, which would have been apostasy, of course, to turn from Christ. The whole book of Hebrews is establishing the rule, the reign, the kingly reign, the high priestly office also of the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins to show that all these things that were there are no longer there. Those sacrifices of old, they don't mean anything. They're completely fulfilled in Christ. That priesthood of old, it was only typical of the one who would come and his one sacrifice and his intercession and so forth. And so, he goes on to write in verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, talking about Sinai, the giving of the law. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. For this shaking of heaven signifies something being massively changed. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken... They remain. Well, what cannot be shaken? Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, 
Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. The shakings of the heaven, the shaking of the earth, these things signify a great change, the destruction of Judaism. The severance of Christianity from it by the 70 A.D. destruction, the permanent establishing of the kingdom of Christ. These figures are then biblically understood to be speaking of a massive change in the order of things in Scripture. Ordained by God, comes from heaven. In finality, when the judgment of the world comes at the very end of all things, all things will be shaken. The greatest change ever comes. All things will be shaken, and the kingdom of God in its glorious eternal state and condition will be established. That's why Peter, when he, he draws upon the flood and uh, to show uh, as well as the thief in the night that the Lord will come, and then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, he says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. I can remember my grandmother when I was a little boy. I can remember saying to me, Ronnie, God destroyed this world by a flood of waters at one time. The next time it's destroyed by fire. I can almost remember her saying that to me as well. There will actually be a regeneration, everything cleansed, then a new heavens and a new earth. As two verses later, Peter mentions that. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, the promise of the coming, the consummate second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Of course, in the parables, like the parable of the tares and the wheat, the Lord Jesus Christ makes the application, as in Matthew chapter 13, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. The massive change that comes permanently when the Lord comes. The shaking that established Christianity as separate from Judaism took place a couple thousand years ago. Of course, exactly as the Lord had forewarned. But the shaking that remains at the end of the world will establish the kingdom of God in its full glorious manifestation. So that godly wisdom dictates that we now be ready. That we now be ready for the second appearing. And heed the Lord's warnings, as in Matthew 24, verse 44. 
Therefore be ye also ready. For in such an hour as you think not. The son of man cometh. Told you this is no little study we're engaged in. It's going to require something. I want to turn it to this. The warnings of the Olivet Discourse now all apply to us. All of these warnings now apply to us. And the readiness for the Lord's coming and not the entanglement with the charms of the world is to be our main business. There's danger the world poses. Not only in its entertaining charms, but even in the normal activities that can rob of time and attention. They're dangers spiritually to you in the world. There's the danger of being lulled to sleep spiritually or of being pressed and distracted by overactivity. There's precious little time that we have in this world. We're not here long. Life is indeed brief. Our time in it is uncertain. Like the hymn reads. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim. Its glories pass away. James says, what is your life? It is like a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. It's amazing to me in my 76 years, sometimes it seemed like I was a little boy yesterday. Time goes very quickly. More than we realize. It seems sometimes we're a long time of it. When we're very young, we think we're never going to reach a certain time or a certain age. It seems so far away. I remember when I was a boy, I just wanted to drive. I wanted to get my driver's license. I wanted to be able to drive a car. It seemed like it would be forever before I ever got to be 16 years old. Then you get to be older. What happens? It seems like it's compressed. Time moves swiftly. We're not here long. The fool wasted on that which they cannot keep. If you're without Christ, your whole life then centered in this world and what you can get out of it, soon you're going to leave it behind. And the hope is that you will without delay by God's grace, be brought to repentance from sin and to rest only in the sinner's Savior who gave himself to die so that those who are called and those who believe will be his forever. The scriptures do teach us not to put it off. God says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
but for the believer. The pressures of the world are always there. Always posing the danger of lulling to sleep. And we can be foolish enough sometimes to engage in those things that remove our attention from where it should be. Things that eat up time and attention. But as we read to begin this morning in the service, our salvation, that is the finality of it, is nearer than when we believed. The Lord is coming, and if he doesn't come, we're going. The days of Noah warn us of the dangers of attention being absorbed on the world to the neglect of the things that really matter, as the days of Noah were. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. We're warned not to be lulled to sleep by the things of this world. We have the teaching of the foolish and the wise virgins that open chapter 25. The foolish virgins had no oil in their lamps when the Lord came. The wise virgins had oil in their lamps. We'll deal with that when we get to that chapter. Be a while. But oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. It speaks of the reality of salvation in the believer. Five foolish virgins, they couldn't go in when the Lord would come. Only those who had oil in their vessels. Your lamp trimmed and burning. The seriousness, the waiting, the looking, the expecting, the hoping. The realization that this world is passing, everything you have in it is going to go. All of it. We get shaken up when we think the economy is going to collapse. We have a banking crisis. We don't know what's going to happen. We do not know what's going to happen. So we better not trust in uncertain riches. But in the living God. We let the things of this world grab our hearts too often. Lull us to sleep. Remove our thoughts and our desires from where they ought to be. Be ye also ready. For at such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Yes, that is applied to the second coming. The danger is always there. It always requires the fight of faith. To keep your hand to the plow and not look back. Because those who look back are those who then will draw back. 
and the Lord says, are not fitted for the kingdom of God. Even to the point of family taking our attention from what should belong to God. The Lord warns about that. The Olivet Discourse was not given by our Lord to supply a way for fanciful prophetism to tickle the ears of men. but to call to a constant preparedness, a readiness to leave the world behind at any time by having our hearts on the Lord and the glorious inheritance awaiting us who know and love the Savior above all. What applies to the prophetic book of Revelation also applies here. faith and patience the book of revelation speaks of the faith and patience of the saints as you well know or should patience in the biblical sense does not simply mean waiting for something it means continuing to look and trust and continue no matter how difficult the faith the path may be so just like in the book of revelation the Lord calls for the faith and patience of the saints. It's promised as their great blessing to those who overcome and who keep the word of God. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the prophecies of this book and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Neglect is perilous. Very perilous. We're taught that in the book of Hebrews very clearly. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which, at the, uh, which began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? The day is coming. The day of Jesus Christ is coming. And we're to be looking not looking on the world, not looking at world events, not looking and trying to figure out how this country or that country or this event or this earthquake or that thing, pestilence, shows the end. Matter of fact, we're going to find something very interesting. The Lord Jesus called those things men used to tickle the ears of men. He called them misleading signs. They're not signs of the end. As we continue in this study we'll find it unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time that's Hebrews 9.28 do you know that even our gathering together has reference to that coming day it's given us God gave you this this is what he has ordained. The gathering of the saints, the ministry of the word of God, the exposition of his truth. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
not less, more. Faithful to the ministry, to the church, to the saints, to the assembly, which just projects forth that one day all of the truly regenerate church of Jesus Christ will be gathered unto him at his coming. Those who do not love the church and gather with it, realizing the Lord's blessed promise, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. They're certainly not anticipating with the greatest of joy being forever with the Lord when he comes. They would be miserable because all their joys are in this world, not in him. What it comes down to is whether or not there is really a reality of his so great salvation. A knowing of him who came into this world to die in the place of sinners, to bear the full brunt of the wrath of God against sin on behalf of all who would come to believe on him. He rose again from the dead. He reigns from the throne of God. He's coming again for those whom he loves and whom he redeemed. And thus who have been embraced by and embraced the greatest and most wondrous love there is or could possibly be. You see this all of it discourse is not there to grab men's fancy. It has a powerful effect when it is understood. And the Lord was always practical. The question then is not do you understand everything about the Olivet Discourse? I think some things are purposely obscure. The Lord would just have us know we're not simply to want curiously to know what is there. What is the question? Are you ready? Are you ready? May God bless the ministry of his holy word.